Well, great music, amen? Mm. I love this. I do this every Lord's Day. I know about you guys. But you got the sun in your eyes on my back, but it's all good. We'll open up your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2, the second Psalm. Today we're going to seek to answer uh, the question on authority. Psalm chapter 2. There's some confusion in our land in regards to authority. Who is really in charge here? Sure, Christians uh, all the time attest to the authority of Christ in the church. But what about the things outside of, of the church? And what is the ultimate standard by which cultural institutions are to subject themselves to? Is there an ultimate standard in all realms of society? Or... Is man free to use his own reasoning to create the building blocks of society? That's what we're going to seek to answer today. You know, there's an idea in our land of a secular versus spiritual realm where the things in the spiritual realm belong in the private sector of life. They belong in the church. But anything in public life is to be secular or neutral. Another term for this is called dualism, the secular and the spiritual. And any institution outside the church must be devoid of any religious dogma, they say. It must be neutral. Whether it's education, business, entertainment, economics, politics, uh, the civil realm, it's not appropriate, they say, to bring your religion into it. Not everyone believes what you and I believe, so keep your Christianity inside the church, inside your private life. But friends, we need to realize that it hasn't always been this way in the Western world. Within the Western world, this can be traced back to the 18th century Age of Enlightenment, also known as the Age of Reason. Philosophers like Immanuel Kant, John Locke, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and others were leaders of this age. And among other things, the Enlightenment period sought to define mankind as independently free, autonomous, rational, equal beings. And they would even say that mankind is endowed with natural rights, not by their creator, but by the collective reason of the people. And because man is a free, rational being, capable to have independent reason, he is only obligated to this quote-unquote law of reason. So in other words, mankind does not need religious dogma or a higher div divine objective standard to be governed by in society, but each man has his own re uh, inner reason, free rationale, and the ability to self-regulate himself by using autonomous reasoning. He is able to create, through this autonomous reasoning, he is able to create free and fair societies, they would say. One of the leading philosophers of that age was John Locke, who once said, quote, the state of nature, the state of nature, what we see here today, has a law of nature to govern it, which obliges everyone. And reason, which is that law, teaches all mankind who will, but, who will but consult it, that all being equal and independent, 
He says no one ought to harm another in his life, health, liberty, and or possessions. What they were advocating for was to be freed from the bonds of religion and to build cultures and societies based upon this idea of neutrality. Man is free, they say. Man is autonomous. Uh, he can reason with his own uh, rational thinking. And with this reason, mankind can create free, autonomous societies. That's what these philosophers uh, of the 18th century had in mind. That, that it was everything needed to be neutral. No religious dogma. No presuppositions to bring into uh, building of societies. But here's the thing, my friends. Neutrality is a myth. That's what we have to understand as Christians. What the philosophers of the 18th century didn't see was that their own conclusions about what's right and wrong when it comes to societies, it was anything but neutral. They created their own religious dogmas and were intolerant to anyone who would oppose their way of thinking, especially Christians. Does this sound familiar to you? These um, uh, philosophical thinkers of the 18th century set the, uh, set the foundation for what we see happening in the Western world today and here in our own country. Many philosophers today use guys like John Locke as their basis for their logic. They've modernized it, and then they take it even to a further degree. One of them, a man by the name of John Rawls, uh, John Rawls was known as one of the most influential political philosophers of the 20th century. He died in 2002. There was a study done in 2008 uh, with professors of accredited four-year colleges and universities in the United States. Over a thousand of them were surveyed, and they found that Rawls, John Rawls, was voted to be on the first on the list of, quote, scholars who have had the greatest impact on political theory in the past 20 years. Rawls' philosophy, brothers and sisters, derived from the likes of John Locke, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and all of the other philosophers in this age of enlightenment in the 18th century. Rawls, uh, like, like John Locke and others before him, John Rawls sought to eliminate all religion from the public square, especially in governments and political thought. Uh, in his work, Political Liberalism, listen to what he says here. He makes this point very clear. He says, quote, any comprehensive doctrine, religious or secular, he says it can be introduced into the political environment at any time. But I argue, he says, that people who do this should also present what they believe are public reasons for their argument. So their opinion is no longer just that of one particular party, but an opinion that all members of society might reasonably argue to. You see what he's saying there? Not necessarily that they would agree to. What's important, he says, is that people give the kinds of reasons that can be understood and appraised apart from their particular comprehensive doctrines. You hear what he's saying, friends? In other words, you can share your beliefs and they can even stem from your religious beliefs. You just have to leave Jesus and the authority of his word at the door and argue in a way that is neutral to others in the cultural environment. Rawls places man's autonomous reasoning 
above any religious dogma. He states that in the public square, argumentation, debate, and the building of societies must be neutral so that the common man, using his own autonomous reason, will understand apart from religious presuppositions. Friends, we must know this is called liberal democracy. This is the whole political framework that has permeated our country. And it sets itself over and against God, His law, and the Christian faith. This is the philosophy of our land, brothers and sisters, and the church has bought it hook, line, and sinker. Christians no longer attempt to assert truth from a standpoint of thus saith the Lord, but Christians seek to argue in this mythical sandbox called neutrality. The trouble is, folks, there's no such thing as neutrality. It is a myth. While Rawls and others argue for neutrality, their entire political and philosophical system is far from it. This political system and religious ideology is called liberal democracy and itself has its own framework of religious beliefs. It has its own dogmas. It has its own standards, its own presuppositions, and it even has its own heresies that they would blacklist and cancel those who would proclaim these heresies. Within this framework, no one religion can be allowed to dominate in the public square, in the creating and building of societies and their governments, except, of course, their religion, which is secular humanism. That is the foundation for their political framework of liberal democracy. This religion is the religion of man, where man is God, and he has sought to rid himself completely of the divine authority the divine law, creational order, and man seeks to make himself God and makes to, and seeks to make his own law apart from God's law. And friends, the church over the last 150 years has either placated to these ungodly ideologies or has attempted to synchronize the two. But these ideas are totally foreign to scripture and are antithetical to the Christian faith. Friends, like every area in our lives, we must seek to reform our beliefs and our practice to the Word of God and the Word of God alone. While the world is crumbling around us, Christians are confused as to what, if anything, we can do. Uh, what should we do? How do we love our neighbor in the public square? Must we set aside God's objective standard of truth? and seek to reason with people based upon uh, natural law or neutrality or their own reasoning or even try to appeal to man's autonomous reasoning? Don't we just push people away by bringing our exclusive religious dogma of the Christian faith into the public square? Shouldn't we just leave it aside and try to uh, uh, argue logically based upon their own rationale and reasoning? Well, sure, you can do that. You can set aside Christ, set aside his law, commit treason to the God who has all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You can set aside his authority and try to argue in this mythical sandbox of neutrality. You can definitely do that. 
And you know what? There are people actually doing that. You know what we're left with when people do that? We're left with a Christ-less conservatism. Christ-less conservatism. This is a movement that seeks to rob the Christian worldview, take the values of the Christian worldview, yet commits cosmic treason by leaving God's law and his authority and demand for allegiance at the door. That's not the way the Bible tells us we ought to approach uh, this issue. Christless conservatism denies the absolute sovereignty of God in the political life. And to deny the absolute sovereignty of Christ in any area of life, listen to me, to deny the sovereignty of God in any area of life is to commit cosmic treason and rebellion towards God. Christless conservatism continues to move away from God as the society continues to move away from God. Think about the conservatism movement are accepting things that it would never accepted 15, 20 years ago. Because the culture has shifted, so since the conservatism uh, movement doesn't want to hold to God's law and God's word, it, it, it continues to slide with culture just a little bit more to the right. Okay? Think about the conservatism as a whole in general, 15 years ago would not have accepted same-sex marriage. Now, the conservative movement is accepting that and being silent or actually advocating for same-sex marriage. Same thing with abortion. Uh, 15, 20 years ago, conservatism would not have accepted regulation of baby murder. But now, since the culture continues to move, now you see the conservative talking head saying, hey, we got to not be so pro-life. we got to not talk about this so much. Why? Because we're going to lose elections now. I mean, can you imagine for a minute, can you imagine the Christians who are trying to abolish slavery? Imagine for a moment that they would start talking like that. Hey, we got to cool it on the slavery thing. We're going to lose elections, so we got to stop advocating that all men are created equal in the eyes of God. And we got to stop advocating that because we're losing elections. But that's where Christless conservatism takes you, brothers and sisters. We saw an example of this just a week or two ago in Ohio. Ohio had a, a ballot measure where they let the people decide because liberal democracy. Hey, let's see what the people want. Let's see if the people want to kill their preborn babies in the womb. And let's put it on the voting ballot measure. Well, you know what happened. Uh, Ohio voted to pass and enshrine in the state constitution baby murder at any time, any way, at any stage of development. But that's not why I brought that up. This is why I brought that up. Because the people who we think were on our side fighting for that not to pass in Ohio, they had a coalition together. This coalition was called... Protect Women Ohio. This was the pro-life industry who unashamedly is non-Christian, who leaves the authority of Christ and his law at the door and tries to, to, to argue and to promote pro-life issues in this myth of neutrality. They abandoned God's law and they tried or they spent millions of dollars advocating for this vote to vote against it, which is great. We want that, right? But their messaging, what did it look like? Was their messaging, abortion is murder? God says, thou shalt not murder? No. Their messaging was anything but. 
their, to summarize their message, their main argument was this. Don't vote to pass this because this amendment is dangerous and extreme, which it is. But they say it threatens babies from being murdered. No. They said it threatens parental rights and the health and safety of women in Ohio and permits painful late-term abortions. That was their biggest thing. Protect parental rights. Don't pass this. Protect the health of women. Yes, killing the baby inside of your womb is detrimental to the women also, but there's only one person dying in the process of abortion. There's only one victim, and that's the baby who's uh, innocently killed. So this Christless conservative group, which you see it all throughout the nation, abandon God's law, abandon his authority, abandon submitting to his reign and rule, and let's try to argue based upon fallen man's reason, based upon fallen sinful man's autonomy. Let's try to argue that way. And friends, Christ is not glorified in that, and the Lord will not bless those efforts. Our country will not be turned around by Christless conservatism. So what do we do? What can we do? Should we do anything? Or do we have a duty to engage the public square in cultural institutions like economics, politics, education? And if so, does God provide us with instructions? And I'm here to tell you today that's a resounding yes. God not only tells us the what to do, but he also tells us the how to do it. And Psalm 2 gives us great insight into the issue and provides us with the mandate by which we are to engage as Christians in the public square. So let's look at Psalm 2. Now, I'm going to read it for you. And then we're going to do a brief overview of the text. Psalm 2 says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely uh, tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, or kiss the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now Psalm 2 is strategically placed at the beginning of the book of Psalms. It's right after Psalm 1, but uh, many times Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are actually put together as one psalm. Uh, there's actually these bookends, and it's a literary device used. At the beginning of Psalm 1, it says, How blessed is the man. And at the end of Psalm 2, How blessed are all them. It's the same words in the Hebrew. These are bookends, and they're combining Psalm 1 and 2. 
Psalm 1 gives a clear two paths of the way of the righteous, gives the path of the way of the wicked. And then you come to Psalm 2, where the Lord, through his servant David, is giving a warning to those who are on the path of the wicked. So this psalm can be divided into four sections, which we see by the subjects it addresses, but also in its po poetic form, which are in four stanzas, three verses each. We see the first three verses address the rebellion of man. Then the next three addresses the Lord's response to man's rebellion. Then the next three verses, we have the son's decree or the son's declaration. And then the last three verses uh, addresses man's obligation, man's response. How is man to respond? So the first three verses, we see man's rebellion. We see the psalmist describe the rebellion of man, all mankind throughout the world. The psalmist asks why. Why are the nations in uproar? Why are the, the nations in a rage? Why are the nations in turmoil? Why are the nations in rebellion, he asks. Now this word is in the plural. He's talking about all the nations across the world. Why are they in turmoil? Why are they, uh, why are they in rebellion? Why are they in a rage? You know, it's like almost the psalmist asking, if he were today, here today, why is America in a rage? Why is Canada in an uproar? Why is China in a rage? Why is North Korea in turmoil? So these are nations, plural, across the world. And then he asks, why are the people devising a vain thing? He's identifying the people within these nations that are in an uproar. Why are these people devising a vain thing? Now that vain thing could mean futile, worthless. Why are the nations in an uproar and the people of these nations devising futile things, things that will fail? And we're going to get to what they're devising here in a moment. Then he identifies the third group of people. These are the kings. And the fourth, the rulers. He asks, why are the kings, or excuse me, he doesn't ask, he says, verse 2, the kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers of these rebellious nations from verse 1, they take their stand as if they're digging their heels into the ground. They've made up their mind. They will not waver. They've made their decision. And the rulers, he says, take counsel together. The rulers of these nations and people meet to conspire. They're conspiring about how to make their own society, like today. The rulers of the nations are meeting together and conspiring on how they can make a utopian mankind, one world free of divine law, free of divine authority. How can we make mankind into a free nation, into a free, excuse me, free world apart from the authority of God? And why are they in uproar? He asked. Why are they devising vain, futile things? And why are they taking counsel, it says in verse 2, they're taking counsel against the Lord and his against his anointed. Why? Well, it says here in verse 3, look at the verse. They're saying, let us tear our fetters, their fetters apart, and cast away their cords among us. Here they are seeking to break free from the chains that bound them to the almighty creator that 
created them. The kings and the rulers of the nation, friends, are seeking autonomy. They're seeking to be severed from the sovereign authority of their creator. They want to tear their chains apart and cast the shackles away from them. They wish to have no one rule over them, but to be their own rule and to be their own God and to have their own law. They will not be tied down by the sovereign God of the universe, and they definitely won't be fettered by His law. They seek liberation from the law that God wrote upon their heart. No, no, no. We will decide what's right and wrong, not God. We will determine what marriage is and what marriage isn't. We will decide when, where, and how preborn babies can be legally murdered. We will decide what genders we want to be. We will decide how to govern mankind according to what we determine to be good, not what any God of the universe determines to be good. These first three verses summarizes the rebellion of mankind in general, but also the rebellion of kings of the earth in particular. And this is not a general rebellion. Friends, look at verse 2. This rebellion is against none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. It says that these rulers take counsel against the Lord and His anointed. That word in the Hebrew is Messiah. They take counsel against the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostles saw this text in their day and they quoted from in Acts 4.25 how all the rulers of their day took stand against Jesus and crucified Him. Yet this truth of this psalm still prevails today. Rulers of the nations today, kings, presidents, senators, congressmen, legislators, city and county councilmen still seek to be unshackled from Christ and His law. They will not be ruled by Him and will not be governed by His law, but will rule by their own autonomous self-reason and self-law. They themselves have become their own God, creating their own standards after their own desires. And we are foolish enough to think that because somebody says they are a Christian or a conservative, that we should support them and vote for them. But friends, may I remind you that the chief justices that originally ruled the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973 were all members in good standing of their local church. May I remind you that many conservative, quote-unquote, and professing Christian lawmakers still support and support laws that allow for marriage outside of God's ordained purpose and plan for marriage. May I remind you, friends, that the most ardent opposers of bills that would establish biblical justice for the preborn babies here in our state are elders and deacons of their local conservative churches. They may run for political office as a conservative or as a Christian, but once they're elected, they will not be ruled by Christ and His law, but will be ruled by their own reasoning and their own pragmatic thinking. Because they've been indoctrinated, listen, they've been indoctrinated 
with a philosophy of liberal democracy and the myth of neutrality. And believing in this myth of dualism, the separation of secular and, and religious spheres. This is absolutely foreign to scripture. And where has this led us as a country, as a nation? We're seeing the annihilation of our historically Christian nation. We see abortion on demand in many states. We see drag queen pedophilia, gender dysphoria, the mutilation of image bearers of God, little boys and little girls, euthanasia, etc. The nations are in a rage, friends. Our country is in a rage. Our country is in rebellion. Now, what is our response to that? What is your response to all of the chaos going on in our country? Well, you might anger. You might respond with anger. You see the injustices going on, and it angers you. You might respond with confusion. You're confused as to how did our nation get here. You may respond in despair and just give up and say, forget about it. Nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to change. It's only going to get worse. Why bother? How does the Lord respond? How does God on his throne respond to these nations in a rage, to these kings and rulers who are setting themselves against the Lord Jesus Christ? It says it right here. Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He sees this little creatures shaking their fists at him. You think, how does the Lord respond when mankind seeks to be freed from the shackles of his divine authority, his divine law? They're like a little ant to him. It's like he's, he's, it's like us looking at a little ant down here, shaking their fists at you, saying, I will not be ruled by you. I will take you down. It says the Lord laughs. Now, this is not a type of laughter that you and I would have if we we're watching some silly sitcom. This is a laugh where it's followed up by he scoffs at them. This is a laugh where he's holding them in derision, your version might say. It's a it's an unbelievable laughter. The Lord is looking down on puny, rebellious and stupid mankind whom he gave life and breath, whom he gave all of the universe to declare his existence. The whole heavens are declaring the glory of God. And this little mankind seeks to raise up a fist against me. He responds by laughing and scoffing at them. But that is short-lived because that laughter and that scoffing quickly turns to anger. Verse 5. He will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. This is the Lord's response after he picks up his jaw off the floor in laughter. Now he responds in anger and fury. And what is his response? Look at verse 6. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. This is my response. In my anger, I am installing my king. He will sit upon my throne, upon the throne upon Zion, my holy mountain. God the Father has appointed, this is the word here, 
where he says, I have installed, I have appointed, I have established. God the Father is saying, I have established my king. I have set apart Jesus. I consecrated him. This is the truth all throughout the Bible, ladies and gentlemen, that Christ is the king of the universe. And this is how God responds to rebellious man by establishing his king, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to be rule or to rule over all of the earth. You know, we're coming to a time of Christmas uh, here shortly. And there's a Christmas passage that's often uh, often said around this time is Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders. And he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. This is God's response to rebellious man. I have set upon my king, Jesus, and he will rule over the nations. He will rule over the nations. Psalm 110, verse 1 says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is quoted many times in the New Testament, applying this uh, ruler as Jesus Christ. Jesus rules and reigns because the Father has set him to be the king. Now let's look at the next portion, the next three verses. This is the Son's decree. We have a shift now. Now you have God the Father's response to man's rebellion. Now here is the Lord Jesus Christ, the king himself, speaking in the first person. He says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, he's speaking about the Father. The Father said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and shatter them like earthenware. So here, Jesus Christ, he is declaring his rule over all of mankind with these verses. These verses here, uh, in verse 7, where it says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. This verse is quoted in the New Testament, referring to both Jesus' birth, Hebrews 1.5, and Jesus' resurrection, Acts 13.33. Today, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Now, begotten in the text does not mean Jesus was a created being. Jesus is an eternal being, the second person of the Trinity. He has always been true God of all time. But this text is referring to God the Father, uh, giving him the rule and reign to be the king. He's bringing him forth and declaring him to be king. Then the Son whom the Father bring forth declares that the Father says to him, Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possessions. Please note the key words in verse 8. He says, I will surely give you the nations, plural again, as your inheritance. And he says, the very ends of the earth, he says, as your possession. 
the very ends, this word in the Hebrew uh, describes extremities like the soles of your feet to your fingertips. The very ends of the earth, the Father says to the Son, will be your possession. The writer is trying to convey that there is no parts of the earth off limits to the reign of Christ. That he would be given full rule and reign over every single area and every single corner of the earth. That's what's being said here. But there's only one condition. There's only one condition for Jesus to rule over the nations. There's only one condition for Jesus to have all authority over the, all the ends of the earth, from every corner of the earth. There's one condition given. Look at the text. Verse 8. The Father says, Ask of me. Ask of me. And I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance. This is the one condition that the Son just has to ask, and it will be given to Him. Let me ask you a question, friends. Do you think Jesus forgot to ask? Do you think Jesus forgot to ask, and now He's not the ruler of the nations? He's not the possession of all the ends of the earth. Do you think Jesus forgot to ask? No, He did not, friends. As a matter of fact, we know He asked because Jesus declares it in the Great Commission. You know the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18. Jesus, resurrected on the third day, proven to be God, says to his disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and only in the church. That's not what he said. That's not what the text said. All authority has been given to me in heaven and in your religious private worship. That's not what he said. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. When Jesus rose from the dead, it tells us that he did ask God the Father, and God the Father did give him all of the nations, friends, all of the nations as his inheritance. God the Father did give God the Son every single nation to be the Lord of what? Lords. To be the king of what? Kings. Friends, that's not just an abstract saying. We say it all the time. He's king of kings. That means he is king of the, of the regime of North Korea. That means he is king of the president of the United States. That means he is king of the president of Canada. He is the king of kings. And since he is king of kings, my friends, all nations and rulers and authorities and kings are required, are required to submit to Christ and to submit to his law, my friends. Understand that truth and it will open up your eyes to a whole new world. Christ has been given all authority. That means he's been given all authority of, of Rock Hill. That means all of the rulers of this town, from the city council to the greater county council, to everybody who is in a place of authority in Rock Hill, Jesus has the authority over them. And Jesus says to submit to me and to submit to my law. It says he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will shatter them as earthenware. Friends, we must understand that Jesus Christ is doing this now. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says that he must reign continually until he puts all his enemies under his feet. Jesus is doing this now, but friends, he's not doing it by compulsion. 
He's not doing it with a physical army. He is ruling with a rod of iron. He is doing it with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is doing it with the word of God. Matthew 21, 44. Jesus says, He who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls will scatter him like dust. Jeremiah 23, 29. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and a hammer which shatters the rock. So Jesus is ruling with a rod of iron, and the weapon that he is using is not physical compulsion to subdue his enemies, but the weapon he is using is the word of God. And the people he is using are his people to declare the word of God. When John saw Jesus in all his glory in Revelation chapter 1, in verse 16, he saw, it says, he saw a sharp two-edged sword out of his mouth. That is the word of God. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. So it's the word of God is the means that Christ is using to subdue his enemies, not by compulsion. Lastly, the last three verses addresses man's obligation or man's response. Man has rebelled. The Lord has responded by installing his king, King Jesus, who has declared that his inheritance of the nations has come to fruition. The Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Now it says, therefore, in verse 10, therefore, because of these truths, because kings, judges, and rulers, and peoples of the nations, because I have installed my king, because he is, has all authority, because he rules and reigns, now, therefore, O kings, it says, and he gives four commands. He gives four commands. He says, show discernment, take warning, rejoice, and kiss the sun. Or you do homage to the sun. First, we ought to praise God for his mercy. Like, he could end and wipe out these kings right now, but no, he gives them a chance to repent. And he says, show discernment. Show discernment. Be wise, it means. Be instructed. Show insight. Show insight. Then he says, take warning, O judges of the earth. This is a verb in the imperative. It means to be warned or to be rebuked or to be corrected. Now that you have these truths, O kings, O rulers, be corrected. Be warned. And here, the next one, worship the Lord with reverence. Or you could also say, serve him with fear. And then it says, rejoice with trembling. Now, this is another level of fear. You have fear, which God is calling the rulers to worship with fear. But now rejoice with trembling. This literally means to shake. He's wanting to bring these truths upon the rulers of the nations. So instead of mocking God, instead of shaking their fist at God, that they would tremble at his word. Then the final instruction is to kiss the sun, it says, verse 12, or do homage to the sun. It means to bow down, to give your whole allegiance to Christ in every area of your life. 
Not in some areas, brothers and sisters, friends. Christ demands submission in every area of your life. This is non-optional. It's not negotiable, friends. This is immutable. God will not change. This is fixed and he will not allow any other way. He demands total allegiance from you in every area of your life. But this is a message specifically to the rulers of the earth, to the presidents of the earth, to the senators of the earth, to the congressmen, the governors, the mayors, the city council members. This is the message he's giving in this psalm. And that's this. There is one law and there's one lawgiver. There's only one king. It's Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate. He has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Repent of your autonomy. Repent of usurping Christ's rule and trusting in your own reasoning and your own pragmatic thinking and bow your knee to him. Christ alone, friends, is the sovereign king. And you are required to rule by his standard by his law and not your own. The psalmist says, do this quick before his long suffering ends. And all that's left for you is judgment. This not only applies to the rulers of the governments, but all institutions on the earth in every cultural area of life, whether it be education, entertainment, business, economics, family, church, sports, friends, it's all under the rule and the authority of Christ. We have been so conformed to this worldly thinking and brainwashed in this area, this idea of dualism that we can't possibly bring Christ and the authority of his law outside the church. This psalmist, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is telling us otherwise. And this is why I wanted to have a service out here on the public square so that we can get outside the four walls of the church and declare that there's only one king, there's only one law, there's only one sovereign ruler of the earth, and that is Jesus Christ who has all of the authority in heaven and all of the authority on earth. Joe Boot, the theologian, puts it this way, there is no part of the cosmos, no law sphere, no aspect of society, or culture that is not being made subject to Jesus Christ and his word. Listen to his words. The family, the church, the school, the courts, parliament or Congress are all called to be expressions, however fallibly, of the kingdom of God. It is this view of politics alone that protects us from the absolutizing and therefore deifying some other form of political life. Now, children, deifying means to make a god out of something, okay? And he's saying the only way to protect mankind from making themselves to be God or making other idols to be God is to have a view that there's no area of life that's not under the authority of Jesus Christ. Friends, if there's not a divine law over man's law within all our cultural institutions, such as government, family, education, civics, politics, arts, sciences even, if there's not a divine law above man's law in these areas, then man's law becomes absolute in his own eyes. And there's no barrier 
as the apologist Greg Bonson said, there's no barrier to totalitarianism. There's no barrier to communism or Marxism. This is the message that God has to rulers, to governing authorities. But the truth is, friends, most of the governing authorities have never heard this message. So my question is, who's telling them? Brothers and sisters, if we don't tell them, who will? Because I guarantee most of their churches that they're in and most of their pastors are not. We need more men of courage like John the Baptist who publicly rebuked Herod using the authority of God's law, not man's self-reason. He used God's law to a pagan king who didn't believe in the God of the Jews and he said, no, it is not lawful for you to marry your brother's wife. That came from God's law. We need more men of courage that would stand for the truth of God like John the Baptist. We need more men like Moses who did not compromise Pharaoh's bargain but demanded Pharaoh's full obedience to God's decree which was what? Let my people go. Pharaoh said what? Okay, you can go believe the women and children, right? He tried to bargain with him but Moses commanded Pharaoh to be allegiant to give his submission to God's decree to the full decree of God. We need more like men like Elijah, who spent his days rebuking King Ahab to the point that King Ahab called him the troubler of Israel. Those who govern us, friends, need to see us as their thorn of righteousness in their side. You know, many may say, Mark, that's not our job, you know. We're just to share the share the gospel. Well, I would say that's actually part of the problem because this myth, this buys into the myth of dualism. It's not an either-or, friends. It's not just give them the gospel or speak truth to our uh, culture. It's a both-and. It's not an either-or. It's a both-and. And listen to this. If we are to make disciples, which we are, uh, to make disciples of all nations, to all people groups, all mankind, does not that include to make disciples of those who govern over people in our culture. Why are we separating them? Paul calls them deacons in Romans 13. They are servants and ministers by God. They're called to punish evil and reward good. And the Great Commission is to make disciples and to teach them all that I have commanded, Jesus says. Well, who's teaching the people outside the church? The governing authorities, the rulers, who's teaching these cultural institutions to bow the knee to Christ? Has not God commanded rulers, kings, and governors to govern according to his law? Yes. So who's telling them? Who's discipling them? R.C. Sproul once said, quote, When the state becomes lax in defending, promoting, and maintaining human life, and loses its passionate commitment to justice, the church must speak. He says, and every Christian is called to speak. End quote. Well, there's one more part of this text that we need to look at before we end, and that's the very last in verse 12. How the psalmist ends this. He says, for his wrath may soon be kindled. The wrath of Jesus Christ 
will soon, friends, be kindled. His long-suffering will soon end. His patience will soon end. And then it says, how blessed are all who take refuge in Him. He's contrasting the impending wrath of God with the blessing upon those who take refuge in Him. And to take refuge means to seek protection, to seek covering, like a little baby chick seeks refuge under her mom's wings. And this refuge, it says, in what? It says, blessed are those who take refuge in Him. Refuge from what, though? Protection from what? It's right before it. Protection from the very wrath of God, brothers and sisters. So if you have not taken refuge in Jesus Christ, if you have not trusted upon Him and Him alone for salvation, if you put your trust in your own works, in your own good deeds, if you trusted in the things you did growing up in the church, you were baptized, therefore I'm saved, you are part of a church, you've done good works, you've done this, you've done that, therefore I must be going to heaven. But the Bible says that our works are like filthy rags compared to a holy God. And there's salvation in only one name, and that's Jesus Christ. So to take refuge in Jesus Christ means that you're no longer putting your trust in your own goodness. You are repenting of your own goodness and putting all of your faith and all of your hope in one person and one person alone, and that is Jesus Christ. He lived the life, friends, that you and I could never live in perfect obedience to the law of God. That is how righteous you must be if you wish to go to heaven. If you want to do good enough works to go to heaven, you have to be absolutely perfect. You have to never sin, never break God's commandments, never lie, never steal, never cheat, never use the Lord's name in vain, uh, never be deceptive. All of those things, if you've sinned just once, your punishment is eternal hell where the worm does not die and the fire does not quench. That's the word of God says. But God in His mercy and in His love, friends, He sent His Son Jesus Christ. He lived the life of perfect obedience to the law of God. He lived the life that you and I must live to be good enough to go to heaven. And then He died on the cross to suffer the wrath of God for you and I's sin. The sin that you constantly rebel against God when you lie, steal, when you turn your back on God, when you fail to honor and glorify God. When Jesus died on the cross, the wrath that you and I deserve for our sin was placed upon Jesus at the cross at that moment. And only those, listen to me, only those who repent of their sin and put their faith in Christ and Christ alone will be saved. When you do that, God takes the righteousness of Jesus and gives it to your accounts. He credits it to you free by grace. And when you come to Christ, He takes your sin and places it upon Christ upon the cross. When Jesus was on the cross, hear me. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment, Jesus cried out because God the Father poured all his wrath on sin. All of the judgment for you and I's sin if you're in Christ. He poured that wrath upon Christ at that moment on the cross. And that's why Jesus says, why, my God, my God, why have you 
forsaken me. Friends, today is the day of salvation. Do not delay it any longer. Come to Christ and live. Cry out to Him in repentance and put all your faith and hope and trust in Him for salvation. So I'm going to conclude very briefly with three applications from this text. Number one, pray. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2 says, First of all, I urge entreaties and prayers and petitions, thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may live, lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Friends, we need to be praying for our rulers. We're commanded as Christians to pray for them so that we would be able to live a quiet and peaceful life. Pray that they would establish justice, that they would obey God's law so that we can live a quiet and peaceful life. Number two, speak. So we pray and speak. Be the prophetic voice to the culture. Speak with courage. Speak with convictions. Speak with love. God hasn't called everybody to come to the public square and speak into a microphone and in the open air. But what I mean by speaking is whatever context of life God has put you in and the people he has surrounded you with at school or coworkers, whatever it is, speak the truth of God. Do not be ashamed. Speak with conviction. Speak with courage and the Holy Spirit will be with you. Three, be still. Be still. Be at peace and know that he is God. Psalm 46, 10. Cease, he says, and know that I am God. The context of that passage in Psalm 46 is similar to Psalm 2. The rage, the, the world is moving, shaking all around them. World turmoil, conflicts, wars, impending and threatening danger to God's people. The nations, it says in verse 6, have made an uproar. The kingdoms have tottered, it says. But he says, cease from striving. Be still and know that I am God. He says, come behold the works of the Lord. Come look at what the Lord has done. He makes wars to cease. Friends, God is sovereign. He brings up kings, he raises them up, and he brings them down. Wipe out all of the evil rulers and the injustices of our time. But we must understand that God is sovereign and he's working all things according to his will and his plan. When we understand that God is sovereign in the area of all of life, we can stop and cease and be still. We can be at peace and know that he is God. Well, friends, all that doesn't matter if you've not kissed the sun. If you've not done homage to the Son, if you've not bowed the knee to Christ and given yourself wholly to His sovereign reign, none of that matters. Jesus says if you're willing, only if you're willing to give up all and follow me, are you worthy to be my disciple. He said a man must be born again before he can enter the kingdom of heaven. A born again person is one, while imperfectly, has given Christ his unlimited unlimited obedience and submission to. That's what it means to be born again. So if you've never bowed the knee to Christ, you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, 
I urge you, friends, those here and those listening abroad, I urge you, if you can hear the sound of my voice, do not delay. The Lord is calling you to repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. He'll give you a new heart. He'll wash away your sins. He'll forgive you of all of the dirty deeds you've done in the past. He'll forgive you of all the, the dirty thoughts that you've thought in your mind that you would shudder if other people knew of those thoughts. He'll forgive you of it all, friends, but you must put your faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your, your word. We thank you for your sovereign reign over all the earth. Help us, God, to grow in our understanding of, of your reign and your rule upon this earth. Lord, I thank you that we had this opportunity today to lift up the name of Jesus Christ, to proclaim the excellencies of your grace. And Father, I pray that if there's anybody here that is not in Christ, has not been born again, that you would use the gospel that came forth, draw them by your Holy Spirit, convict them of their sin, bring them to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray for our culture as it continues in degradation, Lord, as it continues in its rebellion towards you, as it continues in its turmoil and an uproar, Lord, we pray, God, we pray for your mercy because you, Lord, we deserve your judgment as a nation, as a culture, as this world. We pray for your mercy. We pray for revival. We pray for your people to pray, to speak, and to be at peace knowing you are God. We give you honor and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.